And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Friday, September 23rd, and I have my good friends, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Hospital, and Dr. Michelle Mazir, who, uh, Michelle, please tell us what your current title is at the hospital. So I am currently the immediate past president of the medical staff and one of the co-incident commanders over our COVID response. So we've got the right person on. I know you've been on many times before, Dr. Mazir, but we've got the right person as it relates to COVID and the, the latest, greatest with COVID. So uh, why don't, uh, Pam, why don't you start and kind of give us an update on the census of COVID patients since we last spoke almost two months ago, maybe? Two months? In three days, it'll be two months. So, wow. yes. So, I'm looking outside, and it's fall now, and, you know, it's it's interesting because we've gone through several falls in COVID, and I think last time fall came around, we started seeing changes around November, so I'm hoping this year we don't see those changes again. But um, I will give you the numbers from July 26th uh, and up to today. So last July 26th, we had 22 inpatients with five awaiting results and uh, zero on vents. And today we have 17 inpatients with two on vents and two awaiting results. Um, And then in terms of deaths at Elmhurst, last July we had 298 total deaths and now we're at 311. So for two months we had 13 people die. So it's not that people aren't continuing to get sick and die, it's just at a less level than before. Um, Of the patients that are currently in the hospital, 13 of them have been vaccinated and four were not vaccinated. In DuPage County, there was 251,000 before and there are now 266,000. And DuPage County deaths went from 1,831 to 1,873. And the state went from 300. And 55 million people having had COVID up to uh, 376 million people having COVID. And then state deaths, or um, yeah, state deaths went from 38,822 to 39,610. So again, as I said, it is still there. People are still getting very sick. It's just more of a limited number of people getting hospitalized and sick. And then discharges, the good news, we went from 3,224 people discharged to 3,455 people discharged, and we continue at the 97% recovery rate. As it relates in particular to folks on ventilators, I know early on in the pandemic that uh, not a lot of folks came off those ventilators. Is Is there a better chance of coming off a ventilator now than it was two years ago with COVID? You know, I think that question is is hard to answer because it so much depends on what other comorbidities that particular patient has um, really will determine whether or not they're going to come off the vent. Okay. And are we still assuming that most of the current cases are the Omicron variant or subvariants of that? 
We are. Remember, we don't test specifically for the variants here, so we rely on the reports from the state. And there are several Omicron variants circulating right now, but BA5 is the um, most predominant and it's probably about 80% of what we're seeing right now. And BA5 is a, a subvariant of Omicron? Got it. Got it. And are there any other variants outside of that that are starting to, uh, you know, gain some traction in other parts of either our country, our state, or our world? I think BA5 is the big one. There is BA4 and BA4.6 as well, but right now BA5 is really the predominant player. And how about surges predicted? Are there any of those on the horizon? I'm going to say no and cross my fingers and have wishful thinking, but I think that, you know, we don't really know how this is going to behave going forward. I think the thing that we are really worried about as an organization is flu entering the scene again. Um, and that, you know, flu typically will start anytime late in the fall, um, early in the winter. So that, that's really what we're trying to uh, plan for right now is a combination of flu and COVID. I know when the vaccines first were available that most of the cases were folks that were unvaccinated. And then slowly there became more and more breakthrough infections. And granted, those breakthrough infections in most cases were less severe than other infections, but is that percentage of breakthrough infections pretty high right now? Are most of the folks that, that are, um, that have contracted COVID and that you're treating, do they tend to be vaccinated folks? So that becomes a tricky question. When you look at data, like in the state or um, in the United States as a whole, that data is difficult to interpret now because so many people are doing home tests. And so what we can say as far as right here and in our Elmhurst population, the breakthrough rate has been about 35 to 40%, um, but it's difficult to extrapolate that to you know the whole state or even the United States. And the last time we spoke, uh, there was a really large hesitancy for parents uh, of children under five years old to get them vaccinated. Is that still the case? You know, I think it's been steady. We've seen um, a steady number of pediatric patients at our drive-through in Downers Grove that offers the vaccine, and we started offering it in the pediatric in a few of the pediatrician offices as well. And the 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 request for the vaccine has been steady. If you look at the vaccine rates in Illinois. It's steadily, the vaccine rate steadily increases as the age goes up. So for the Illinois population five and over, that rate of vaccination is 73.9. And then when you get to 65 and over, it's 89.7. So you see the change between the older population and that younger population. But I think there has has still been a a steady request for those pediatric vaccines. I think it's fair to say that... uh... You know, there's a new normal in our society as it relates to, you know, this pandemic and, you know, the disease happening in general. So my question is, are there folks, you know, in the near future or maybe now that are maybe in medical school that maybe are um, and maybe past medical school, maybe it's, you know, well beyond that, but where they start to specialize in maybe infectious diseases and they might even subspecialize in COVID and are there there going to be specialties just in this disease and other diseases very similar and maybe hospital wings that are dedicated just to this or clinics? 
I think as far as medical specialties go, I think we have so much to learn probably over the next few years about the consequences of all of these COVID infections. So I definitely think we're going to have to increase our, you know, responses to these patients that are termed long haulers. And then as far as hospitals having sections separate for COVID, I think what we learned as an organization, and Pam can correct me if she thinks I'm wrong, I think we learned that we needed to be flexible because when our COVID numbers dropped, our other patients still needed places in the hospital. And so it, it becomes very difficult to put, you know, a portion of your bricks and mortar saying, oh, this is only going to be COVID. I think we did a great job of flexing up when we needed to and then flexing back down when we didn't need those COVID-specific spaces. And I would just add on that um, it's going to be treated like any other infectious disease that we treat in the hospital where you do put somebody in isolation. You make sure that it's in an environment where there's not people who are immunocompromised so that they could catch the disease. And you um, just make sure that you have the trained staff that can manage the patient with whatever environment you're putting them in. For us, we have a couple of units, um, whether it's our intensive care unit or our fifth floor medical unit, that has primarily taken care of any COVID patient. But if somebody has a, a cardiac issue and COVID at the same time, they would be in a, an isolation room on our cardiology unit. So we do um, look at what all of their needs are and then put them in the right space. If we get a huge surge, then we would be more likely to be putting them all close to each other because it's just easier for the staff to think about how to manage them when they're in one environment. But if you just have what we've been having now, which is, what, 17 patients in, that's just a small portion of our population. And, and they all, we have all private rooms and they would all be in isolation rooms anyway. The last couple of years, we've talked a lot about the financial implications of COVID on hospitals in particular. Some of those um, effects of COVID had to do with not being able to perform uh, other services that were more elective for quite a while. And then the hesitancy of some patients to actually have those services performed. So I know that tends not to be the biggest issue right now. Most Folks are, you know, now getting the medical care that they put off. But as it relates to COVID in particular, are are there still subsidies from the federal government for COVID patients? And and is a COVID patient generally a break-even proposition, a, a loss proposition, a somewhat profitable proposition? So I'll take this one because <clears throat> it's near and dear to my heart. First of all, we do thank the government for helping us during COVID. You're right. It was because of a lot of things that were going on that we couldn't do, which is where we make money that supports us being able to provide care to all people, whether they can afford care or not. Um, and the government was very helpful, and that's how we made it through the last couple of years. I do not anticipate we're going to get any more gov government subsidies unless something drastic happened that would force that to us to close things down again and the government to reevaluate. But at this point, this is part of now everyday life and our future practice. And so we have to figure out how to be financially viable with this as one of the diseases that we take care of as we do any other disease. In terms of whether we make money, break even, or lose money on a COVID patient, it is all very specific to that particular patient all of their comorbid conditions, and whatever their payer source is. So if they have no funding, obviously we lose money. If it's Medicaid or Medicare, we probably 
lose money or may break even if we're lucky. If they're if they have a lot of comorbid conditions, it might make it that we do or don't make money depending on what those are. And then you have um, managed care, and usually you might make a little bit of money on managed care. We don't usually make money on medical conditions at all. Um, it's usually just very minimal. Where we do make more of our money is on the uh, surgical or the vented patients. So um, can can one of you kind of give me an overview on the whole new booster shot uh, subject and who's eligible what do those boosters do that maybe the original um, vaccine didn't do, if anything? Um, and do they, tar- you know, they target different variants than the originals? Can you get the booster if you haven't had the, the first shots? Can you kind of give me an overview? Sure. So the new booster um, is people may hear the term bivalent booster. And what they did is they took one of the older strains and then one of the newer strains and combined them into one vaccine so that we we should be able to get a larger response from this bivalent booster. Um, Anybody who is 12 and older is recommended to get this new bivalent booster. And in fact, for that population, when the government approved these uh, bivalent boosters for emergency use authorization, they actually took away approval for these age groups for that the previous booster. So now if you're 12 and up, the booster that you get is the bivalent booster. Um, Moderna is uh, authorized for individuals 18 and older. Pfizer is for individuals 12 and older. And you have to have had a primary vaccine series and then two months lapse and you are eligible for the bivalent booster or two months from, if you had one of the original boosters, two months after that, you can get your bivalent booster. And and you, I think you answered the question about, does it target new variants because they use two different variants of the, of the virus, right, to develop this? Is that what I heard you say? Exactly, so they use the older um, variant that went, you know, from when COVID was introduced into our population and then the newer variants that are more uh, recent. And are the original uh, series of vaccines still available for those who are ineligible for a booster but have decided now I want to get vaccinated? Absolutely. So we, in our organization, we have Moderna, Pfizer, and Novavax, and we have all of those available at our Downers Grove drive through location. You can sign up for them on our website. Great. Um, Pam, a a subject near and dear to your heart is um, mental health. And does do mental health issues still tend to be a lot worse than they were pre-COVID? Are there a lot of folks out there suffering that may not have gotten care yet? Well, that's hard to know. But what we are seeing is a lot more anxiety disorders. Uh, There's just uh, just a general... Um, amount, you know, general feeling in the, in society right now that anxiety is much higher, and I and that would make sense with everything everybody's been through, how um, unpredictable our lives have been over the last couple of years, and being isolated, anxiety would be the thing that would happen most frequently, and we are seeing much more people coming into our outpatient programs for anxiety. We are starting to see our inpatient volumes um, go up again, and particularly around adolescents. 
now that they have to go back to school and the, and their lives are maybe coming back to a little bit of what should have been normal, which it was is not normal for them. The the um, the thing is that mental illness can kind of hide when you're at home, but once you get to school, it gets shown a lot more frequently. And so we are seeing a rise. It started in mid-August of inpatient adolescent treatment again. Uh, you know, and, and the acuity of people that are actually going in the hospital is much higher than it used to be. So I still think a lot of people are afraid to get treatment and are not being, or not being recognized because maybe they just think it's because they've been isolated so long and it'll go away. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't continue to grow. But anxiety is the thing you need to be looking out for with people. And, they, and there is help, so people should try to get help and not, not suffer through it by themselves. And uh, one last thing I want to ask about, I, I believe both of you ladies attended the uh, Hospital Foundation's Autumn Affair a couple weeks ago, and uh, I, I heard it was a great success. I was unable to attend. I was on vacation. Can you tell me a little bit about how that went and uh, how they did? It, it was fabulous. It was really great to be back in person. We had an excellent turnout. People stayed until they kicked us out. Um, there was a lot of fun. And I think most importantly, um, you know, this event really is the, the event for the foundation that supports the hospital um, primarily. It's our primary event. And we raised $440,000, which is the most that we've ever raised from that event. And I think that is due to participation by the community and by the physician groups that were there. So it, it really was a huge success. And honestly, we thank everybody that contributed in some way. It takes so many people to put that event on. And then the donors at the event, the donors who couldn't make it, um, it really makes a, a huge impact on the hospital. That's great. Yeah, I, I got to echo what Dr. Mazir said. The community was so supportive. Our physicians were so supportive. You know, we had a video from some of our nurses about our residency program because it's been really hard on the new nurses during this time of entering uh, healthcare and and not not knowing any different than what they've seen in COVID and COVID was a much different time and so our our residency program is so important to keeping nurses young nurses in the healthcare field and I think everybody was moved by the nurses that spoke on that video and um, and and people financially no matter what's going on in their personal lives, we're extremely supportive to us, and we appreciate that because it's so important for us to stay in this community. Well, it's a reason to celebrate, and uh, kudos to you, the community, the physicians groups, and the foundation staff and, and board uh, for that success. Well, 440000 I'm impressed. Uh, thank you, ladies. Uh, Pam, Dr. Mazir, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.